Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We give you all the praise, glory, honor that's due your name, and that's everything, Lord. I pray that we would see you high and lifted up, Lord, that the King Uzziah's of our life would die so that we could see you, Lord. I pray that your glory would be manifest here in our presence, Lord. I pray that the truth would set us free. I pray that we would grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray by the power of your Spirit, your word would not return void or empty. Lord, grow us and make us more like you as we present ourselves to you now, Lord. We do that completely, wholly, totally as a holy living sacrifice. We say, Lord... Here we are. Take all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, can you say hello to a couple people, please, before you sit down? All right, come on in and have a seat. Come on down. All right. That's enough. All right, well, we are going to get started this morning, and uh, we're going to do that by giving you a few announcements. So uh, just a couple quick reminders. Uh, One is that this Wednesday night, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and three, so I encourage you to read ahead for those chapters. We just started the book of 1 Corinthians last week, and um, you, can, you can get the first chapter uh, online at our website. Uh, also, uh, this morning we're going to have communion. And um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out. Turn to the book of Luke. And we are in chapter 7 this morning. And we're going to cover the section of Scripture from verses 18 to 35. Luke chapter 7, verse 18. As we look at this, this section of Scripture, it's a very interesting and maybe odd, startling section of Scripture. And we'll see why as we work, work through it, but it's extremely helpful. And it's extremely encouraging because the Bible tells us that we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. And I know from the time that I became a Christian until now, uh, my theology changed. I think it became more accurate and more correct. I used to think there was like a direct correlation to um, my behavior and obedience to the Lord and what many would say blessings. I thought they were attached together. And my idea of blessings were sort of, if I do the right thing according to God, I'll, I'll be blessed. And, and part of my thinking was I won't have to go through very many hard things. That's what I thought blessed was. And as, as I grew in my faith, I uh, and many times have been shocked by the things that have come onto my plate that I didn't uh, sign up for or didn't plan on them coming. And uh, life often uh, looks uh, different than we plan and, and we think. And we don't always get to choose the 
trials that we go through and the difficulties that we go through. But uh, what I what I found is that this is not heaven, and so everything is not going to be perfect. And there are tribulations, and there are many tribulations. And Jesus even proclaimed, in this world you'll have tribulations. And you could be walking perfectly according to God's will and still suffer tribulations. And even you might suffer particular tribulations and trials because you're walking with the Lord. Wow. So you read the book of Job and you find out, hey, here's a guy who is the most godly of the people around. And Satan came to God and said, how about your servant Job? His godliness is encouraging me to want to test how godly he really is. And so godliness can actually bring about more trials and tribulations and difficulties. And so we're going to look at that this morning and in the Bible, during the Bible times, they would have something called the threshing floor. The threshing floor would be a place where wheat would be gathered and heaped up. And the wheat, in its raw form, would not be ready for consumption because it contained something called chaff. Chaff would be sort of an impurity or something that would make it not uh, okay to eat. It'd be like... Uh, eating a banana with the peel on it. And so they would go about this process called winnowing. And to winnow, they would take sort of a pitchfork and put it into that heap of wheat, and they would just throw it up. As they threw it up, the wind would take the lighter part, which is called the chaff. It would take that and blow it away. That's the undesirable part. And the wheat, because it's heavier, would fall straight down. And that's how they would separate the wheat from the what? From the chaff. And that would call the threshing floor. But I see that as a great metaphor for the Christian life. And I call it the thrashing floor. (laughs) So some of you are on the thrashing floor right now. And you are being tossed in the air and... There are things being taken out of your life, the chaff. There are things being blown away. There are things that are are difficult um, that you're uh, going through trial-wise, and they're being taken away, and you feel like you're getting thrashed. You feel like you're caught in between sets at Newport Beach when a a large storm is coming. You're just getting torn up by the waves and and you're tumbling and bumbling and and you can't get your breath. And then here comes another one and and you go under, you hold your breath and you're being twisted around and you come up and here comes another one and you're getting pummeled. But as you're doing that, you look over as you're getting pummeled and there's another person enjoying the ride. You're getting pummeled and they're going down, dropping in on this wave. This wave is causing a lot of enthusiasm and excitement. They're shooting the barrel, going through bottom turns, making turns off the top lip. And they're, they're experiencing this wave in a very different way. So, which one are we? We are all being threshed or thrashed. 
And I know that because the Bible tells us it's actually God's will, meaning if you're a believer, His plan is your sanctification. We can't avoid it. That's what God does. He sanctifies us. And what does that mean? That means as believers, we go through a process of God separating us like the wheat and the chaff, but He's taking out of our life the things that are not good. And we don't like that. It hurts sometimes. And the harder we hold on, the more it hurts. And God is not going to stop doing that because He loves us. And He knows that our attachments to ourself, to the world, and things like that, He knows that's harmful to us. He knows that those things are going to cause problems in our life. And so He's gracious enough to take us through this process of threshing or thrashing and getting rid of those impurities and so this morning we we look at this incredible account of someone who is in a place of despair they're disappointed they're discouraged and that has led to doubt they're in this dark dungeon of questioning. One of the biggest statements of someone that is in this position, in a position of disappointment and discouragement and doubt is, why? Why, God? Why is this happening? And the scripture is given to us this account so that we know that we're not alone. In fact, it's normal to feel like that. It's common, it's proper to go through seasons where we feel this disappointment and discouragement and doubt. But sometimes we face trials that come from the outside circumstances and and things like that, those type of tests. And, and then there are these internal trials. They're inside of us. That, that these thoughts that we get. Satan attacks our thoughts. And these are the things that really work well on people that really care about their walk. So there are other trials that Satan uses. In the book of Ephesians chapter 6, tells us that Satan has all sorts of different ways to attack us. But the internal trials, the, the things that go on inside of us, there are particular attacks that Satan uses to launch against those who really care about their walk, they care about their testimony, they care about their relationship with God, and and one pastor told me a while ago that something I know I'll never forget. He said, the devil always sails with the wind. And so if you don't care and if you're lukewarm, he'll sail with that and make you more lukewarm and get you comfortable being lukewarm and uh, complacent and not caring. But if you do care, he'll sail with that and get you to you care so much that that when things are not happening the way you think and want, 
you can get really discouraged. And discouragement is such a tool of the enemy. And nobody is immune to it, especially those who care. In fact, the prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher, maybe one of the most effective preachers that ever walked the planet in the 1800s, he suffered from great depression. And it is said that on Sundays after ministry and after church, after these great salvation occurrences and the great transformational work of his messages and his sermons, he would go home weeping and laying in his wife's lap until he fell asleep. He was so discouraged. And so this is what we're going to look at this morning, this account of one who found himself in a place of great discouragement that led to doubt. So let's take a look at Luke chapter 7. We're going to just start in verse 18 where it says the disciples of John reported to him, it's John the Baptist, reported to him concerning all these things. And so John the Baptist, the, the narrative sort of shifted from him where in the beginning of Luke, the beginning of Matthew, in particular, the narrative really sort of focused on him until he baptized Jesus. And then the narrative shifts. It's as if his role, his ministry was as a forerunner. The Old Testament says he was a forerunner. His job was to point to Christ. And at the, the baptism of Christ, then the narrative focuses on Christ. And so the, John the Baptist seems to kind of be obscured um, in the background, sort of just pushed away. And why is that? Because it's not about him. And John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. John the Baptist had a large following. He had his own disciples. And so now here we get this little glimpse and this account that we have is only found here and in Matthew chapter 12. And as we see this Matthew 11, that didn't feel right. Matthew 11, sorry. So it says, John's asking his disciples. He's saying, well, what about all, what's going on with Jesus? So he was keeping tabs on Jesus. And you might say, well, why wasn't he with Jesus? Because he was in prison. Matthew chapter 11 tells us he's asking the question from prison. He said, why is he in prison? He's in prison because he confronted power with the truth. You know, uh, it's often dangerous to confront, confront anybody with the truth. You may have experienced people who shunned you, don't like you, don't talk to you anymore simply because you have shed the truth onto their life and they weren't accepting it. They didn't like it. And because of their disdain for the truth, then the reproaches that were meant for Christ had fallen on you. The Bible says, rebuke a fool and what will happen? He'll hate you. So that's a dangerous territory to start to get into when we start to 
confront people with the truth. And, and John the Baptist was a guy that that's what he was going to do. He didn't care who it was. He didn't care where it was. He didn't care what it may cost him. But he was a man of the truth. And because of that, he was going to speak the truth, preach the truth, walk in truth. And when necessary, he was going to confront people with the truth. So he did that. He did that to Herod. One of the sons of the great Herod. And this Herod had married his brother's wife and John confronted him. He said, hey, that's wrong. And subsequently, he was put in prison in a place called Machaerus. It's a place you can visit now. It's in Jordan. It's on the east side of the Dead Sea. There's a fortress there. And John found himself in a dungeon, a dark dungeon in prison for speaking the truth. Now, John, John the Baptist, is an amazing, an amazing man. Even Jesus said he was the greatest man alive up to that point. We're going to see that in our scripture. But this John the Baptist, he was, it was prophesied about him that he would be a forerunner that would point to Christ. Malachi 3.1, that there would be a forerunner. And what that means is that there would be one that would be on the scene that would sort of point to, hey, the Messiah is here. He would be someone who would be a type of Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. And it would be, just be a way for people to know. It would be like a signal for them to say, do you remember the Messiah wasn't going to come magically out of nowhere with no uh, previous precedent, but the Messiah would come from over 300 prophecies of him coming. But not only that, one of those would be there's, there would be a guy with an unusual, powerful ministry, and he would be a forerunner. He'd sort of pave the way or prepare the way for, for people to recognize Jesus and give their life to Jesus. This John the Baptist, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. He was the last Old Testament prophet. He was Jesus' cousin. He baptized Jesus. And when he did, he would be right there when the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus and the heavens opened up and the Father, God the Father, said, This is my Son in whom I am still pleased. And John the Baptist would probably be holding Jesus. So he'd definitely be right next to Jesus in his baptism during this event. This is the same John the Baptist in John 1.29 that pointed at him and said, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He would be proclaiming that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about a Messiah to come that would take away the sins of the of the world. He would say that I'm not worthy to even undo his sandal straps or to put them back on. He said that, I'm, that Jesus is so great. He's, we're not even in the same category. And he's telling his disciples, look, 
I need to, in, to decrease and he needs to increase. You need to understand my whole job was just to point to him. And then he finds himself in prison. That's a tough thing to be persecuted for doing the right thing. And we find that all throughout the scripture. We find that with uh, Daniel and Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and doing the, the right thing, but being punished for that. And this is where John's condition probably is set up to doubt and to be discouraged. It's unfulfilled expectations. It's being blindsided by something. It's expecting something to go one way. And I think a lot of us, like me, in my early theology, I thought if I just walk with the Lord, then there'd be this linear trajectory of going like this, and there'd never be any dips, never be any difficulties, or, but God would bless me if I do what's right. And so there's an added torment or frustration mentally when we don't understand what's going on and get this, and it just doesn't seem right because of the way we think about things. It doesn't seem like I should have to go through this. It doesn't see, and then we ask the question, why is this happening, God? Why me? Why is this going on? So he's asking his disciples, like, tell me what's going on with Jesus. Keep tabs. And, and so they would tell him all these things that Jesus is doing. And that even added fuel to the doubting fire. Why? If Jesus is doing all these miracles, why am I in here? If Jesus can get me out of here, if he could give sight to the blind, raise the dead, and make the lame walk, why am I stuck in here? Can you see the mental torment he's going through? And from, from our vantage point, it's hard to, to really understand how dark of a place he was in, just physically. Just the, the feeling of the darkness, the isolation. You know, in, in war, when they want somebody to be mentally tormented, to, to become mad mentally, they stick him in what? Solitary confinement. So he, he's... He's tormented with loneliness, with questions. It doesn't seem like a lot of times where we want our questions directly answered, where we say, Lord, why am I going through this? Please give me understanding. And we're still sitting in that dark dungeon of misunderstanding or not understanding. And, and we say, well, God, you can give me the answer. Why don't you just zap it in? to my laptop or lap it into my brain. And, and sometimes God doesn't do that. And so he has all this physical torment, mental torment going on, all these things swirling around in his head. So in verse 19, it says, in, in John, calling two of his, John the Baptist's disciples, he sends them to Jesus. And, and here's what he, this is, this is the mind-blowing statement. He sends them to Jesus and he says for them to ask Jesus 
Are you the coming one or do we look for another? So that's shocking. He had already proclaimed him as the Messiah. So what, what, ha what happened? Something happened, didn't it? That trajectory that he was on, this amazing guy pointing to Christ, well, now it went like this. It's like the stock market. It's like your 401k. It's down here. And you thought, man, it'd just go like that. And all of a sudden, things are twisted around. See, he actually wants his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one? This is a guy anointed with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. This is a guy that had made many converts and pointed many to Jesus. This is a very fruitful guy in his ministry. This was a guy that was so hardcore that he didn't buckle to society's pressure. He wasn't politically correct. He even called out those in power and called them brood of vipers. He said, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And, and now this is a different John. Hey, go ask Jesus if he's the one. So he's going through a tough time. He, you might want to say, is having a crisis of faith. Now, what, what is, has caused that? And we, we've kind of looked at a, a few things, but the, the point is to, to understand that being in places like that are normal. You might want to say it's more normal to be in John's position than not to be in that position. Especially if you're one who really cares about God and the things of God and serving God and being useful for God. This is now how Satan will start to sail with that wind. He'll put you in a place where you feel ineffective. You're doing nothing. You're stuck there. You feel like your life has not amounted to much, and it's not going to. He didn't have a big prospect of, of hope or getting out, that his life would be a lot better. So look at verse 20. So his disciples, these men, they come to Jesus with this message. It says, when the men had come to him, to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the coming one or do we look for another? In that very hour, Jesus cured, so past tense, cured many infirmities, afflictions, evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. So in an hour time, he had been doing these, what Spurgeon calls these eyeball sermons. Sermons that they're able to watch Jesus do things that preached a message, like 
We have sermons for the ears, and they were experiencing sermons for the eyes. When Jesus was doing these things mentioned, he was doing what he said he was going to fulfill as being the Messiah from Isaiah chapter 61. And Jesus had pointed out earlier in the book of Luke to where he was in Nazareth, his hometown, and he was reading the scroll, which is what we know as Isaiah 61, and he was reading what he was going to do, and he put away the scroll, and he said, today your hearing is fulfilled. In other words, he's saying, I am the guy of Isaiah 61. And here, what he does, watch what he does. This is how Jesus answers John. Notice he doesn't tell John, hey, tell John, yeah, I am him. He didn't say that. He, he said, this is so important. This is, this is how we get through it. This is how we overcome doubt and discouragement and disappointment. We go back to what we know. That's the answer. Our doubt, our disappointment, our discouragement is often swirling around the things that we don't know. And when we live in the tornado of the unknown and our mind is constantly saying, why God, how come God? Well, what if this happens, God? And then if this happens, then what if that happens? And we can drive ourselves nuts. And Jesus says, take John back to what is known. I am doing Isaiah 61. This is evidence. This is proof. This is better than me just saying, yeah, I'm the guy. But see, going back to Scripture and looking at Scripture and substantiating that God is in control, that God is fulfilling His plan, looking at His sovereignty, looking at the things that He has said in the Old Testament and the things that He has done, we have a better advantage or a greater advantage than John did because 2,000 years after John, we can look back before Jesus fulfilled His promise on the, with the crucifixion and the resurrection. John wasn't able to look at that. We can And so we might have unfulfilled expectations. Life may have taken a turn that we didn't see. We may have had the rug pulled out from under us. We may have felt like we got blindsided. But what is not changed is God's word and God's plan. And we can know that by going back into Scripture. This is what Jesus says. Go back into the Scriptures, John. Think about, take a step back from your emotions and your feelings and this microscopic view of where you're at. Take a step back and look at the grandscape. Look at the big picture. Look at what I'm fulfilling. Look what I'm about to fulfill. Look at what Scripture says. Take heart, John. Take heart. I am king. 
I am Lord, and I'm doing exactly according to the plan. You may not understand it. There may be this micro view that you're looking at in prison, this small thing. Step back a little bit, John. Take your focus on off of that one thing and put your focus on the big thing. Stop looking at what's not happening and look at what is happening. Are we prone to do that? Do we look at what's wrong? Do we look at what's not happening and miss out on 6,000 years of proven witness, historical testimony of God that he is faithful, not only on a macro level, but he's faithful on an individual level. So his answer was, John, get back to what, look what's going on. Look how amazing this is. Get your eyes off yourself and your condition. So in in verse 22, Jesus answered, he said, go tell John the things you have seen. The things you have heard, the blind see, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf, they're hearing the dead, they're raising the poor, have the gospel preached to them. I think that's the greatest miracle. Because who who else could say that? Think about that statement. The gospel being preached. No other religion can preach the gospel, the good news. No other religion can share that God came into this world to be a savior, to live a perfect, sinless life in our place and then die on the cross in our place and raise from the dead so he would be the first fruit of every single person that would come to faith in Jesus Christ, they too would rise from the dead. Don't miss that. John, this is bigger than you. John, I care about you. And John, I'm going to see you really soon. Because John would have his head cut off in prison. His head being cut off was him being set free from the tragedies, difficulties, heartaches, and hardships of this life. His race had been run. But his race was still being run in prison because we're experiencing the fruit of his life in prison. As we look at this account. Never underestimate the position that you're in and God's ability to use that for fruit. John thought his fruitful ministry was over. But maybe this was John's best fruit in prison. Not able to speak to the masses directly. Not able to baptize people. Maybe this is now John's biggest ministry. John is ministering to us now, and he's not even trying. He's ministering to us in a a, a more of a failed condition, a failed state. But it wouldn't be long before he would be set free. So in verse 24, it says, When the messengers of John, when they departed, Jesus then turns his attention and begins to speak to the multitudes. 
concerning John. So you kind of get a sense of this scene. Jesus is in the midst, in, the, in this very hour, he's doing all these miracles. So think about all these miracles. Many of them, from this example, are not recorded specifically. And Jesus is just a miracle machine. But as I've said before, the point of his miracles would, to, would be to testify to who he was. And so the messengers are going back. Jesus is in the midst of all these uh, amazing miracles that he's doing, getting people's attention, showing his power over the physical realm, over sickness, disease, even death. And now he, he, has, he addresses these people because the people that were around him, they heard John's disciples. They heard the questioning. And one might think that's a black mark on John the Baptist's life. But what does Jesus do? He goes and he, he addresses the crowd and he, and he says to the crowd, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? So this was the crowd that have, had, would have gone out into the wilderness when we see wilderness in the Bible. Typically it's a desert, not like the forest. And John was out there in a dry land committed to his ministry and these people would gather and move and, and come in flocks to go be baptized him, to hear his teaching pointing to Christ. And Jesus tells them, what did you remember about John? Similar to what he's telling John. And, and he's sort of putting it in their place because there might be someone in the crowd who might judge John and say, look at John now. Look how weak he is. Look how willing he is to waver in his faith. And so he tells the same crowd that may be doubting John. Isn't that interesting? So the, the doubting is answered in the same way. So to this crowd, he, he tells them, look, do you remember when you went and saw John out there? What, what did you see? Did you see a reed shaken in the wind? What is he saying? What does that mean? Did, did you go to the wilderness and did you see some weak, milk toasty, soft man that was bending under pressure like a, a reed would when the wind would come? Is that what they would see when they'd see John the Baptist? They would see just the opposite. They would be blown away by how strong he was in his convictions. He wasn't wishy-washy. He wasn't double-minded. They went out and saw an anointed man of God fulfilling his calling, unafraid, unashamed, undeterred. And Jesus points that out. And then he says in verse 25, But what, what did you go out and see? Did you see a man clothed in soft garments? In other words, was he living for leisure? Was he wearing a leisure suit? Was he wearing terry cloth? Does anybody wear terry cloth here? Maybe more in the realm of pajamas or something. Did you see a man in, in silk? No, what did they see when they went out there? They, they saw a man wearing camel, camel skins. They saw a man who 
would be dressed in what maybe we would think of as sandpaper or a Brillo pad or those silver things you use to scrub your sink called? What? Steel wool, whatever, those things. Those things. He would be out there in the Judean wilderness wearing clothes that would not be fancy or appealing or not suggest power or ranking or um, comfort, but he'd be wearing an outfit of a prophet. He'd be willing to be uncomfortable. And Jesus is pointing that out. Now, it's interesting to me why Jesus, Jesus is defending him in a way. He's defending him. And, and I think it's interesting to find how quick we are as humans to take other people down. How quick we are to throw the stone at someone who's in a weak place or a low pit place or struggling or facing and, and how easy it is to say, I knew it. I knew John would eventually do it. I knew was, he's kind of had this role and he was doing good for a while, but yeah, look where he is now. And Jesus is defending him. And Jesus is saying, he's not weak. He's not soft. He's not in it for himself. What Jesus was exposing is the reality of the susceptibility of each one of us to go through times like that because we're human. And he points that out. He says, indeed, those who are gorgeously appareled and live in luxury in king's courts. Verse 26, but what did you go out and see? A prophet? Yes. I say to you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before you. It's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Who will prepare the way for you? Verse 28, For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. In other words, to this time, John the Baptist was the greatest human being to ever live, according to Jesus. And he doubted. He struggled. He went through hard times. He had darkness. He had despair discouragement he had all those things so the point is it's okay that's normal but there's also a way out and that's what's even more important the way out is jesus the way out is the truth the way out is not to stay in that condition notice john didn't he did something about it. he said go talk to jesus for me Jesus is the answer to this. And then he says, at the last part of verse 20, he says, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. What does that mean? That means there is going to be a, a different work or a different dispensation that God was, or I'm sorry, John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. They live by the law, according to the law, and Jesus came to fulfill the law. And he's saying that 
every single person that's in Christ, trusting in him, has a better condition than John the Baptist did at this point. Because believers moving forward are now filled with the Holy Spirit. Now we're not living according to the Old Testament laws that Jesus has fulfilled, but we're living according to the grace of Jesus Christ that we get to enjoy. And so we see this all sort of tied together and, and finished off in, in verse 29. It says, When all the people heard him, Jesus, even the tax collectors justified God. The, the lowliest of people in the society, they were the ones that recognized and pointed to the reality of God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. It says in verse 30, it says, but the Pharisees, the religious people, and the lawyers, they rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John the Baptist. So these were the rejectors. These were the pushers away. And it says in verse 31, And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken this generation, the people pushing away from God? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned for you, and you did not weep. He's alluding to games children will play, and they often play now. They play these games, and Jesus is using this as an illustration to say he came in a, a light way compared to John. John. John the Baptist had a more stern way. And they didn't like, the people that rejected Jesus, they didn't like the way Jesus came. They said he eats with tax collectors and sinners. They didn't like that. But then John the Baptist in verse 33 says, John the Baptist, he came and he wasn't eating bread, he wasn't drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. So he came in a real strict way, and he didn't like that either. Verse 34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a drunk, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He says, but wisdom is justified by all her children. In other words, look at the fruit. Jesus is saying, in, in other words, look at, the changes, look at the healings, look at the reality and the ramifications of the ministry of John the Baptist and then Jesus Christ. And so he finishes off this section pointing out that no matter what, there are people that will always push Jesus away. And even if Jesus came in the way that they wanted them, him to come, if he did, they would still push him away. Because the reality of all of that is the fact that Jesus did everything he could from his side of the equation to bring everyone in to his salvation. 
But even with that, there are people who will reject it. And he's saying this in the context of the reality that John the Baptist is not rejecting Christ. He was simply wanting to be assured or reassured. He was struggling in his confidence in who the Lord was. He was in a a, a tight place, a, a moment to where the questions overwhelmed him and the way he He dealt with that as he went to Jesus to get the answers. And that's always the answer. Jesus will always, always meet us right where we're at. And so we see as we finish this section, it's important to know that darkness, disappointment, discouragement, doubt, those are normal. But staying there is not. Don't stay there. Because Jesus has risen from the dead. So we don't have to stay in the darkness. He is the light. So we can see things through the light. The world has no real answers for you. Don't take the temptation. Don't take the bait of the solutions the world offers. Take Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. And he is the light. And he is the answer. He is the answer for your doubt. And he will meet us right where we are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words to us today. We thank you for this account we have Such an important account. I know it is for me. It's been vital for me and my ministry and just to continue on. And I pray for those here, Lord. First, I pray for anybody here who's completely closed to you. Shut off. And we find that there are those in this section of scripture those who are completely closed off and Lord I just want to pray now I pray for an openness just an openness just that anyone who's pushing away pushing back that this would be a moment for them to open their selves open their heart to you that your light would shine in. I pray for those who are carrying the heaviness of guilt and shame, confusion and frustration. These are all things that come and are fruit from the world and embracing the things of the world. I pray that today would be a day of salvation for some. Pray that some would take a step of faith now. If that's you, the Bible tells you just to cry out to the Lord. Say, Lord Jesus, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Come into my life. You can do that right now, right where you're at, but be sincere about it. It's nothing to take lightly. 
If you're sensing that tug in your heart, that's conviction. That's the Holy Spirit. He's saying, come to Jesus. Come now, come. Doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, just come now. All you who are weary and heavy laden, just come. Jesus stands at the door and he knocks. Will you open it? We're going to take communion this morning, and I want to pray for all the rest of us. I know that many of us are going through tough times, struggling. It's hard. Many of us, some of the hardest times of our life. God sees you. He's near. He's asking you to trust Him, to rest in Him to allow Him to continue to work out all the things that He's working out. In those dark times, doubting times, I pray that you would know that those are some of the best times that you'll have with Jesus. If you're in the valley of the shadow of death, He is with you. His rod and His staff, they comfort you there. He doesn't always take us out, but He sees us through. As we take communion, no better way to understand that Jesus knows what we're going through than to what communion points to. And it points to the fact that Jesus suffered. Jesus actually suffered more than any human being has ever suffered. And he did that as God, and he did it as sinless. And so Jesus knows, he actually knows how you feel. He knows your exact emotion. He knows that. He's familiar with that. He has compassion. He cries with you. And so as we take communion, let's remember what Jesus has done for us. Let's remember the cross. Let's remember his suffering for us and ultimately his love for us. Let's continue in prayer. Let's just keep your eyes closed. This is now just a a short, special time. Nothing else matters right now but you and God. You and God. This is a time for you and God. As ushers, they're going to come forward. You guys come forward now. Let's remain in prayer. They're going to pass out the communion elements, hold on to them, and let's take communion all together as a body of Christ. Let this be a special time. It's okay to let go. It's okay to cry. Some of you have been holding and having pent up so much pain and anxiety and hurt. Jesus wept. It's okay to be sad. We're humans. Sadness is part of being a human. Let Jesus weep with you. Sit at his feet. He knows your pain. Tell him about it. Tell him about it.
knows your struggle. You know what communion reminds us of? It reminds us of God saying it's going to be okay. It's what he's telling us. The cross removes all doubt. And if you have a lot of question marks, replace it with the cross mark. Because it was at the cross that God demonstrated his love for us. It was at the cross that he showed us he holds nothing back from us that's good. But it's only at the cross. You're not going to find that anywhere. And maybe this morning Jesus is saying, stop looking, stop running. Stop trying to find answers somewhere else. It's only at the cross. It's the only place that we can have a definitive answer that God loves us and cares about us and was willing to do whatever so that we can be okay. And the Bible tells us because of the cross, we're more than okay, but we're more than conquerors to those who are in Christ Jesus. The cross tells us it's not the end. It tells us that he's going to resurrect after that, that we can now rise in the newness of life. So as we hold these elements, let's remember this bread represents the body of Christ that was given for us. This cup represents the blood of Christ that was shed for our sins. As we take it in, we are saying that we receive the gospel. We receive what Jesus did for us. There's nothing magical here. The magic is in our hearts that are willing to receive the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so, if you receive the finished work of Jesus Christ, let's partake of the bread together. And if you receive, if you have received the blood of Christ, which is shed for the forgiveness of our sins, let's receive the cup and partake together of the cup. Let's all stand and we're going to finish off a song. We're going to worship the Lord. And I just want to encourage you to pour out your heart to the Lord in worship now. If any of you would like prayer, as we sing this last song, just feel free to come on up and we'll have our prayer team. They're going to be up here for you if anybody would like prayer about anything. So let's worship the Lord. Let's not leave any stone uncovered. Let's just give it all to Him and surrender. And He loves you. And He is good. Let's worship the Lord.